Welcome to the Books of Titans podcast, where I seek truth in the world's great books. I'm your host, Eric Rostad, coming to you from the beautiful Books of Titans studio in Franklin, Tennessee. My goal is to read 200 of the great books over the next 10 years and share what I'm learning. I'll talk a bit about each book, tie ideas together from a variety of genres, and share the one thing I always hope to remember from each of the great books. Today, I'm going to cover two books. The first is Civilizations of Ancient Iraq by Benjamin and Karen Foster. And the second book is Gilgamesh, a new translation of the ancient epic by Sophus Heli. Now, these two books are complementary books. They're ancillary books to the main book, uh, book one of the Great Books Project, which was the Epic of Gilgamesh. So for this reading project, for the Great Books portion of this reading project, what my plan is, is to read the Great Book. I've made a list of of roughly 200 of them. So my plan is to read the Great Book, but then to also have what I'm calling a guidebook to help me better understand either the book itself, the area in which it was written, maybe uh, information about the author who wrote it, that kind of thing. So I'll have I'll have a guidebook for each of these, and I, I plan to cover those on the podcast as well. And so the guidebook that I chose for the Epic of Gilgamesh is the Civilizations of Ancient Iraq. And I, I saw the name of it in Andrew George's translation of the Epic of Gilgamesh, and it looked interesting, and it, and it looked, uh, and, and it does cover a lot of the ancient civilizations in the area of Mesopotamia. In the title of this book, they they say Iraq. Uh, This was written in 2009, so still kind of fresh from the the Iraq War. Uh, And and so they use the term Iraq, even though that wasn't used until the 600s uh, around the, the Muslim conquest of that of that area. But, uh, so, so we know it now as Mesopotamia. We know it as the area between the rivers, the Tigris and the Euphrates. And so that's what this book is talking about, uh, all the civilizations from that area. And so it, it goes through kind of the main, the, the major empires of, of that area starts with the, the Amorites goes the, to the Kassites, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, the Romans, the Sassians, and then, uh, there, there's a little information at the very end, just even up to the to the Iraq War uh, and, and the devastation that caused to to some of the museums in in that area and in uh, just a lot of a, a lot of things that we lost in in that chaos. So in, in this episode, I, I, I want to cover first the civilizations of ancient Iraq, and then I, I ended up reading a a third translation of Gilgamesh. And I didn't, so I did not cover that one in my first episode about Gilgamesh. So I, I wanted to talk a little bit about that. And that's the Sophus Heli uh, translation, a, a recent one, a 2021 translation of, of Gilgamesh. So that'll be the second part of this episode where I, I talk about that and then kind of tie these, these two books together as well. So just for the civilizations of ancient Iraq, I wanted to share a few things that I that I learned, and then uh, and then in the at the start of the next segment, I'll talk about what I learned specifically about Gilgamesh as well in in this book. So, just kind of some basics here. You you may know this information, but um, these are some things that that stuck out to me and and I thought were neat. So uh, the Sumer and, and Akkad were were areas that that constituted Babylonia uh, back back in that time. And so Sumer was was in the south and then Akkad was in the north. The language of the tablets of Gilgamesh that that we have are in Akkadian. So that, that would be the language from the, the Akkad area. And Akkadian is a Semitic language and it uses the the cuneiform script. Uh, cuneiform died out uh, around the year uh, 
zero. So in in that split between um, BCE and and uh, the Common Era, uh, that's kind of when it when it stopped. And uh, I'll, I'll get into that just in just a little bit later of of what that meant for cuneiform to to have died out. But uh, where where the Epic of Gilgamesh takes place is in Uruk, and that is one of the world's first cities. So this book, The Civilizations of Ancient Iraq, it goes into Uruk. It, you learn about that area. You learn about um, these kind of first cities in, in history and, and that sort of thing. So Ur, Uruk was one of the first cities, and Gilgamesh was an actual king in, in, uh, in Uruk, uh, or, or as far as we know, it was, it was a king um, in, in that area. The this book talks about the reason that we have some of these tablets now, and there and, and there there are tens of thousands of these tablets in museums now uh, around the world. But the reason we have these tablets is because the rivers would move, and so the rivers of these areas in in this people would have to live near the rivers to to survive. And so if the river moved, the people would just have to pick up and and leave. And so when they would do that, uh, the, if if there are tablets there, if there if there are libraries, that kind of thing, uh, they they may have gotten left behind, and so now when we're doing these excavations, uh, they're finding like huge libraries, and that's because the people would have had to have moved, and then that area would have been unmolested for for just hundreds of years, and so that that's how we were able to get a lot of these these tablets. Otherwise. They may have been lost uh, if the area was attacked or, or that kind of thing. So uh, kind of just a neat, neat reason why we have and, and have discovered some of these tablets in the last 200 years uh, in, in, in the tablet where we got the Epic of, of Gilgamesh as well. One of the greatest discoveries uh, of, of these tablets was in the library of Ashurbanipal, who was king of Assyria from 668 to 627 uh before the common era uh, BC. And I just want to read a little bit about, about this, this King. Uh, he was a very learned, learned man. And apparently he wrote some of these, or he would copy the stories and, and it would be in his, his own hand. Um, but he, he, here's, here's a, here's a, a paragraph about, about him under his direction, thousands of tablets and writing boards were assembled at Nineveh and housed in at least two locations, his palace and the nearby temple of Nabu, God of wisdom and patron of writing. We do not know precisely how many documents the library originally contained, mainly because of the fragmentary nature of the material and the conditions under which it was excavated in the mid 19th century. Estimates range from 1500 to more than 25,000 tablets. And from several hundred to 10,000 boards, depending on how the individual pieces are counted and on the number of tablets thought to be needed for a given work in its entirety. Even a conservative figure of 5,000 holdings, the library is the largest to survive from the ancient world. And, end quote. and then uh, continuing on just a little bit later, uh, Asur Banipal gathered the texts for his library from institutional and private collections throughout the land. Uh, scribes recopied most of them in carefully prepared editions, adding 
colophons in the name of the king, stating that the work was done for my life and for the well-being of my soul, to avoid disease and to sustain the foundations of my throne and for my royal perusal. And quote, uh, part of what was found in this library were uh, the, the Epic of Gilgamesh, the creation epic, which I have coming up as book four for the great books, and some other books as well. So we, we've gotten a lot from from that particular library. And what's what's astonishing is just the sheer number of tablets that we have gotten from this area. So let me just read one thing here. This is towards the end of the book. But the sheer quantity of tablets, uh, not to mention the time required for reading, copying, and translating each document means that today all collections still contain large numbers of unpublished and in some cases uncatalogued holdings, as well as fragments that often are found to join other broken tablets. In recent years, previously unknown pieces of the Epic of Gilgamesh, for instance, have come to light as scholars have identified them in the British Museum, or among the tablets tablets excavated at Assur more than 50 years ago and now housed in Berlin, end quote. And that's just such a neat thing to consider. So first off, this story, the Epic of Gilgamesh, was lost for for nearly 2,000 years. So when uh, cuneiform was ceased to be used, the, the story kind of died along with that. They, they have found the Epic of Gilgamesh story in, in multiple places around that area. Uh, and, and, and in fact, they found it in Megiddo as well, which is uh, in, in the area of, of the, the land of Israel. And it's actually uh, where we get the name Armageddon, uh, Hill of Megiddo. And, and so it, it made it all the way to that area. And then you just think of uh, uh, from the Bible when, when the people of the kingdom of Israel and the people of the kingdom of Judah, when they would have been exiled to uh, Israel, to, to Assyria, and then Judah to Babylon, this Gilgamesh story would have been in the, in the cultural uh, air. I mean, this would have been known. So it, it's just kind of neat to think about that. And it's, uh, when I get into the, the next segment with the Sophus Heli book, he, he has a statement where he says, echoes of Gilgamesh are found in many texts. And I, I highlighted one of those in the, the previous episode, but that's just something that I'm looking forward to, to considering as, as I continue on this great books reading project. Am I going to see echoes of Gilgamesh in these other texts that I'm reading. Uh, it's just something fun that, that I'm looking forward to, to seeing. The, the final part of this book, and, and really the, uh, a sad part, is just it, that they, in the epilogue they talk about um, the, the war in, in Iraq in, in 2003 and in the subsequent years. And just uh, there, there were not precautions taken to secure the museum. And so it was ransacked. Items were just thrown uh, on the floor and, and destroyed, and others were taken and sold on the the black market. And so th- there's a there's a number of photos in this book of tablets and, and different things. And and then the the comment by it will will be this this thing was destroyed in 2003. And so it's just kind of sad to to see that these things that had lasted for two, three, four thousand years were, uh, were destroyed in, in our lifetime, uh, just recently. So 
reading stats for this book, I, I like to share how long stuff takes me to read, just uh, to give you an idea of, of how long uh, it might take you to read the book. So Civilizations of Ancient Iraq, it took seven hours and 24 minutes to get through. It's a 210-page book. I read it between March 9 and March 15 of this year. So it took me uh, seven days total to read it. So the next segment, we'll, we'll, we'll go back to, to Gilgamesh a little bit and, and, and talk a little bit more about, uh, about that epic. So the, the historical figure of Gilgamesh, or the legendary king of, of Uruk, Gilgamesh, uh, was buried with his entourage. I learned this in Civilizations of Ancient Iraq. And you might think that sounds quaint, that you know he, he was surrounded by his, his, all of his people and, and all that. But it's not like they were buried later with him. They were buried when he died. And uh, this was a, apparently a common thing. But he was buried with his wife, children, senior wife, concubine, minstrel, cupbearer, barber, courtiers, palace attendants, and then also just a number of personal effects. But this is what this would have meant. Uh, it's so... Several of the royal graves reflect elaborate burial ritual rituals in which as many as 74 people went to their deaths in order to accompany the tomb's principal occupant into the netherworld. Members of the court, soldiers, servants, and musicians dressed in their finest descended the tomb's sloping passage, followed by men driving oxen or asses hitched to wagons. When all were in place, they drank poison. The animals were killed, the bodies of beasts and people positioned, and the grave shafts, shafts filled with earth, end quote. So the, the legendary king Gilgamesh was, was buried with his entourage. They were all killed so that they could be buried with him. Uh, nice, warm, fuzzy story there. So the other uh, thing that was, was neat is just kind of reading subsequent the, the different cultures that, that uh, and empires that took over in this area, uh, all the way down to the Greeks, it, this book says that the proud old Babylonian scholarly families during the, the Greek period, the Hellenistic Babylonia, they still read the Epic of Gilgamesh. So this story has been has been around around for a long time, it, but but then it was lost for nearly two thousand years, and we we've just kind of rediscovered it. So it's it's neat to think about that because you've you've got stories like the Odyssey and the Iliad, which have been around for a long time, but they never were lost. Uh, we we've had them, and so we we've people have been reading them the this whole time whereas with Gilgamesh it it was lost for 2000 years so there's almost this rediscovery there's almost this freshness about it even though we've we've had it for 150 years now there there's a little more freshness to it and and um I just think that's neat. And the, the other really cool thing about it is with these tablets that we have, uh, you'll, you'll see, if you see a picture of the, the most famous tablet that we have, uh, the, uh, Yale actually has it, uh, but it's this tablet of Gilgamesh, of, of, the, of the epic, of the story, and it's broken into three pieces. There, there's a photo of it in the Civilizations of Ancient Iraq book. It's broken into three pieces, and there's just this huge hole in the middle of it. And there's a, a huge hole at the bottom of it. And so that's just lost text. And so as, as they're looking at these additional tablets and, and seeing uh, Gilgamesh on, on other tablets, they're able to piece some of that 
together. But even in, in the translations that I read, there's, there's huge sections just missing. And so it just, it just, it's exciting. I, I, what if they discover that during our lifetime and we, we get further parts of Gilgamesh? I mean, we, we have the basic outline of the story. Uh, you can read it and just be amazed, but it's just kind of cool to think about that. There might be tablets in these museums that just haven't even been read yet. And, but once they are, that might give us additional pieces of Gilgamesh. Maybe in our lifetime, maybe in our children's or grandchildren's, uh, we, we maybe one day we'll have the full epic in its, in its original form. Just kind of fun, fun to think about it. So now uh, I want to shift to Gilgamesh, the new translation of the ancient epic by Sophus Heli. Now this is, th- this is one that uh, I, I added at the very end. I just I loved the Gilgamesh story so much that I wanted a another tra- I just wanted to read another translation. I mean it, it only takes like an hour and a half to read through the the actual epic. So I I I wanted to do one more uh Dr. Jason Staples suggested this one it's a new one but as with all of these books, I, I read the Stephen Mitchell version, the Andrew George trans- translation, and then the Sophus Heli translation of Gilgamesh. Uh, it's you're not just reading the the version of the story. You, they have notes. They have um, in in the case of Sophus Heli, he's got essays, and these essays at the back of of this book were so helpful in understanding things I had questions about as I was, as I was reading the story or things I was still thinking about. And so I'm so glad I, I read this final one. And, and I, I just want to share a couple things that I, I learned in this book and, and in these essays after the translation that, um, that Sophus had done of, of Gilgamesh. So the, the first thing is just, and this is something that I didn't even notice when I read it. And, and I read it I read Epic of Gilgamesh three times, and I, and I did not even notice this. And he said, the voice of the narrator and Gilgamesh merge into one person at the end of the story. So what what Gilgamesh is, is an autobiography in the third person. So you, you have a man writing about his life. He's writing it in the third person. And then at the very end, that third person voice kind of merges into... Uh, the the narrator and Gilgamesh himself kind of merge into one person at the very end of the story when you're back in Uruk and he's he's telling he's telling his guide to to look around the the city look at the walls and, and look at the city and all that um but you think you think about that and a person writing about their life from the end of their life you you have a different knowledge at that point so you're if, if Gilgamesh is writing about his early life and, and fighting the, the, the monster and going into the cedar forest and, uh, all, you know, all, all of his adventures, he, he's writing from it. He's writing about those things with the knowledge of how they came out. But there was a point where he was first experiencing those things and he's got to write about it in that way. And he's got to write knowing that he was, he did stupid things in his life and he made mistakes and, and, um, he was just an awful king at the beginning, and it's just neat to to think about that. And 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 I love that I I didn't even notice it, uh, but but Sophus Heli pointing it out in in this book, it just kind of added a whole new new dimension and and way to to think about the story. Uh, 
you can you can read it and just think, okay, this is about Gilgamesh. Uh, but to but to think that oh, it, Gilgamesh wrote that he the, wrote this. He wrote it in the third person, but it's him writing his his story. It's just kind of a, a cool way to to think about it. Um, the the other uh, one other thing that that really stuck out to me is at the beginning of of Gilgamesh. It it there's this line where it says this, uh, and it's talking about Gilgamesh. So. Let me just read the this whole first part here. There was a man who saw the deep, the bedrock of the land, who knew the ways and learned all things. Gilgamesh saw the deep, the bedrock of the land. He knew the ways and learned all things. He sought out rulers everywhere and came to grasp all wisdom in the world. He discovered a secret, revealed a hidden matter, and brought home a story from before the flood. End quote. That's the part I want to highlight. He brought home a story from be, from before the flood. There, Sophiselli kind of talks about this in in one of his essays, and and he says uh, there's line there's there's lines um, in the book. So when Gilgamesh's friend dies, he says that he turned back to clay, but then the epic was written on clay. And clay is such that we have clay tablets from all those thousands of years ago. So it, it, it's durable, but it's not durable if it, if it interacts with water. And so the flood was kind of the turning point in, in history. Uh, it's it, it, what, what Sophus Heli calls the ultimate limit of history. You can't, there's no... With the flood, the flood would have wiped out the clay tablets. So there's, there's nothing that you can go to. There's, there's no history from before the flood that you could read about on a clay tablet. It's, it's the ultimate limit of history. And so for Gilgamesh to bring back a story from before the flood is a big deal because there, there was no story from before the flood because it was all wiped out. And the story, I mean, what he, what Gilgamesh is seeking at that point is eternal life. And he learns that he can't have it, but he also learns about stories. And he's told the story of the deluge. He's, to, he's told the story of the flood. And he, he realizes that this is a way that he can become immortal. He can, he can, be, he can become immortal through literary immortality. And I thought about this, I, I put out a, a, a tweet where I, I said this, I said, I'm pondering this idea from Gilgamesh that his quest for eternal life was ultimately fulfilled in an unexpected way by his flesh becoming word, his flesh becoming story, and, and becoming a literary eternal life. And so what I mean, and, and I'm, I'm playing off the idea of the, of the word becoming flesh, but in Gilgamesh's case is he realized he's flesh, he's realized he can't that his flesh cannot live on. He cannot, in his flesh, have eternal life. And so the way he obtains immortality in a way is to is to write down his story. And through that, we know him today. We, we know Gilgamesh because... So he's reached this sort of, I mean, temporal, but, but eternal in a way, a literary eternal life. And uh, so... I loved that that was pointed out and it's just been something I've been thinking about lately. So Sophus Heli also goes into why he thinks Gilgamesh has been successful. 
And I want to read this. I, I just thought this was, was interesting. Gilgamesh has been successful, not because it appeals to some universal truth or because it gives us a, a resounding answer that is as valid now as it was in ancient Uruk. Rather, Gilgamesh has been successful because it interweaves an extraordinary number of threads and themes and topics, allowing new ages and new readers to use it to ask their most pressing questions. The epic survives because it can adapt because it is a poetic kaleidoscope that can be shaken endlessly into new forms, end quote. The final thing I want to highlight is just uh, back to that flood story. And uh, here's what Sophus Helly has, has to say about that. However it circulated, the story of the flood was not simply lifted from Gilgamesh and dumped into Genesis. The two texts reworked the same basic plot for their own ends. The Hebrew Bible made the flood a story of human sin and subsequent covenant with God, while cuneiform works like the creation story in, in, uh, in Gilgamesh used it to explain the origin of omens and the necessity of death, end quote. The other thing, the, the, the other difference in, in the flood story is just that the reason there was a flood in, in Gilgamesh is that the gods were just sick of the noise of the people. And so that was kind of the reason, whereas in the Hebrew Bible, it's because of the wickedness of the people. So I, I talked about this a little bit last week. And, and again, it just, it kind of struck me. I, I knew that I'd heard that there were other flood stories out, out there, but I, I'd never read one. And so to, to know that this flood story was like a thousand years before the one in the Hebrew Bible, uh, just was, was shocking in a way, but just, uh, interesting as well. And, and so, yes, there's a similar story. There's a, there's a similar, like sending birds out to look for dry land and all that. There, there's a lot of similarities there, but the, the initial reason for the flood is different, and then the ramifications of the flood are different in, in the two accounts, the one in Gilgamesh and then the one in the Hebrew Bible. So uh, I, I loved that um, Sophus Heli went, went into that. And again, the, the, there, there's a set of essays at the end of, of his translation, and those essays were just so helpful in talking about things that, that, that I'd been wondering since reading Gilgamesh. So if if you're in that boat, if you've read Gilgamesh and you, and you you just want to kind of do a deeper dive, I recommend this version of of the book because he he goes into so much and uh, it was it was very helpful and and very insightful. So as for reading stats for Gilgamesh by Sophus Heli, uh, it's a 248 page book. It took me six hours 52 minutes to read it. That was over three day period. Uh, March 17 through 19. I just loved it. I, I was also traveling, so I was on a long plane plane ride and just basically read it for most of that plane ride and um, uh, and loved it. So to recap here, gosh, what a fantastic start to the Great Books Project, the Epic of Gilgamesh. I, I, I loved this story. I loved learning about the area that it came from, Mesopotamia. Uh, I, I loved learning about how the story was rediscovered after nearly 2,000 years of it being lost. I love seeing how this story uh, has woven its way into other things. I love just knowing that the Bible was, was the writers of the Bible were perhaps uh, responding to the story of Gilgamesh and other stories that were in the in the area at the time and saying 
here, here's the, here's a, a different way of looking at that story. Here's a different interpretation of that story. I just love thinking about that and, and, uh, hope to continue seeing echoes of, of Gilgamesh in other texts as, as Sophicelli mentioned. If, if you are a beginner with, with Gilgamesh, if you've never read it before, I, I do suggest starting with the Stephen Mitchell version. It's just so easy to read. And just if you just need the basic gist of the story, start with that. Uh, if, if you want to go deep, get the Andrew George translation, which is kind of the gold standard. And that's the one that is put out by Penguin Classics. And then if you just want a deeper dive and uh, uh a fresh translation, get the Sophus Heli one. Uh, that was, it was great. The translation was great, but then just the essays at the end were, were fantastic. And if you want to dig deeper into the, the area in which Gilgamesh came, Civilizations of Ancient Iraq was, was a great, great book for that. So I do hope you read Gilgamesh uh, at some point in your life. Uh, I've, I've just been amazed with it and, and have loved it. And you can get through it rather quickly. That's going to do it for this episode. Thank you for listening. I'll be back in a couple of weeks. I'll probably be talking about Egypt, which is where I am right now in, in the sense of uh, book two for the great books is uh, writings from ancient Egypt. And I've, I have three books, uh, complimentary books that I'm, I'm reading along with that. So the, the main guidebook I'll be reading along with that is The Rise and Fall of Ancient Egypt. And then I have two other books that I'll be referencing as well. I'm going to try to just stick with one guidebook, but I'm, I'm kind of going a little crazy here at the beginning, uh, just just to get my feet wet and to really get to know these cultures and and where the, the where these writings have have come from. Uh, you can follow Books of Titans on Instagram or Twitter at Books of Titans. And then the website, booksoftitans.com, is stock full of resources to help you find the best books and to create your own reading list. I'll be back in a couple weeks. Until then, keep reading, keep learning, and keep listening. I'm out. <laughs>